Welcome back! This is episode 70 of Herpological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Um, and before we really get into this episode, uh, we wanted to basically make a statement for our full support for the Black Lives Matters movement. Uh, these protests and the actions over the past few weeks have done a superb job at shining a light on systematic racism and sort of by extension how that systematic racism appears in the scientific community and science in general. Um, I don't actually have any numbers to hand on how this racism translates into representation or access to herpetology, but from what I've seen in ecology and evolution, you know, that sort of umbrella field, uh, pretty, pretty poor and, well actually more than poor, pretty shocking. And there's no reason to suspect that herpetology isn't following the ecology and evolution sort of route. Um, academia and science is a pretty high-pressure environment to work in. Um, but if you really want to get a good look at how that can compound with racism and, and sort of systematic discrimination, I really suggest heading over to Twitter and having a look at the Black in Ivory, uh, what are they called, hashtag. And some of the stories on there, I mean, the, you read them and it comes across, it is a miracle we have any uh, black scientists left in academia with some of the stuff that people have to put up with on top of the already high pressure and high, high pressure and high stress environment of academia. So one of, I mean, one of the ideas behind the podcast initially was wanting to make science more open and approachable regardless of background or situation. Uh, certainly more pointedly, we wanted a way of improving access to newer scientific findings, which were either gatekept or behind paywalls or, you know, hidden away in this, this esoteric academic environment that can be quite hard to approach and get into if you're perhaps not a second or third gen, you know, are related to people also in the field or have an environment that can basically give you the t tips and tricks to uh, get into academia. Um, we feel we've done a relatively decent job in that regard, i.e. not prioritizing big journals and, and discussing papers regardless of origins across the globe. But prior to now, we haven't really uh, critically engaged with how the podcast can act as a vehicle for countering racism and systematic discrimination in science. So we had, uh, what was it, last week, I suppose? We had to sit down and discussed uh, what what we can do to help, essentially. And one of the things that came out of that discussion is how blind we are to how well represented, how well represented black herpetologists are on the podcast in regards to the authorship and the papers we cover. Um, because we don't really have any, any grounds to make that uh, assessment, we suspect that it's probably mirroring that of ecology and evolution and herpetology in general, i.e. not very good. Um, because of this, we wanted to make a very clear statement to everybody listening um, that we believe that science and herpetology by extension should be available to everyone and that the only way to achieve that is to actively counter racism and discrimination in science and society in general. Um, we don't want a hostile, discriminatory environment or a lack of relatable slash visible role models, be that in papers or positions or 
you know, what you see as what makes a scientist to undermine anyone's enthusiasm or pursuit of herpetology. And we don't like how potentially our accidental or... Is accidental the right word? Mirroring of, of Unintentional, yeah. Unintentional, right. Because it, it feels like the podcast is a reflection of the biases already present. We're not doing anything to counter that, but we want to make it aware, people aware that this, <laughs> this bias you're viewing, we're seeing that as wrong too. Um, we're both very early career researchers uh, with relatively limited power to undermine gatekeeping in an in a active uh, position of power sort of way. Um, but as we go forward, we want to redouble our efforts to undermine things that can prevent basically anybody uh, or anybody experiencing discrimination or disadvantages to getting into herpetology. So in particular, that would be undermine gatekeeping, be that, again, paywall stuff or promoting open open access and along those sorts of things. Because um, these are particularly harmful to first-gen researchers and those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And beyond that, I think, Tom, you've got a few more details on exactly what else we're going to be doing immediately, right? Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, we decided to donate our Patreon earnings from March, April, May and June to a charity in the UK called Interscience UK, which promotes diversity in science, technology, engineering and maths. Uh, Interscience UK was funded in 2010 by a scientist called Dr. Rebecca McKelvey, and its aim is to provide people from low-income and disadvantaged backgrounds an opportunity to gain practical insight into the STEM sector, as well as the knowledge and confidence to progress to university. So every year, Interscience UK gives nearly 500 students the opportunity to take part in placement opportunities in science, technology, engineering and maths, where they work alongside researchers and professionals and get an ex a chance to experience hands-on STEM work over a summer, and what's great about this organisation is that to date, 75% of the participants that they've had actually progress onto degrees in STEM subjects. So, um, yeah, that's just something we've uh, elected to do in the meantime. And hopefully, yeah, the, hopefully that'll... It, it, it counters quite nicely at that gatekeeping aspect. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? And it's a really cool Still... UK-led sort of initiative, which is nice because we both English. Yeah, well, and, and it just feels like something that's quite quite close to us and links up nicely with the overall mission of the uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, okay, it doesn't address the retention issues and more systematic issues in academia, but that we're, we're putting our money where we feel like we can be the most benefit and it's most, most directly tied to uh, changes we can help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be powering on doing what we can where we see where we see things we can do. Yeah. Um, I do like uh, one of these initiatives on Twitter. I oh, I forget the account, which is kind of clumsy of me. Um, building a list and database of uh, black scientist papers, or you know, more more broadly than that. Uh, and that might be a resource in the future that we might dip into if it if there are papers there that, that match up with specific themes for episodes and things. I feel like that's a little bit further down the line when resources like that have been built because I mean obviously we can't we can't build those resources ourselves. 
but we might make use of them if we can. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I feel I feel like this will become there will be more options on the table as we move forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, we actually came here today to talk about Amphisbanians, didn't we? Yeah, worm lizards. Mm. The craziest of the lizards. Yes. Now, this is a Patreon episode for Jeremiah Martin, so big up yourself, Jeremiah. And, um, yeah, Amphisbanians, right? They are pretty bonkers. I mean, I must confess, I got my herpetology textbook out for this episode because I was like, before I get going with these papers, let's find out what an Amphisbanian actually is. And, uh... Amphibobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobobob
Of course he did. Yeah. It's because he's a natural born anarchist. Uh, okay, well, we can do the other one first. <laughs> I, actually think, I actually think the other one makes sense to go first more. I, 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 would, I would think it works better first, yeah. Beckins, Garcia Roa, Martin Ortega, Hoig Van Damme, 2017, Fossorial and Dorophagus. Implications of Melissary. <laughs> Implications of Melissary for head size and bite capacity in a burrowing worm lizard. I love the amount of slightly difficult terms that they've managed to squeeze into that title. I'm all about that. Fossorial and Dorophagus, and then you've got Melissary. So, Fossorial. Lives underground. Mm. Durophagus eats uh, hard-shelled prey. Mm, crunchy. But the one that's really hard to say that has something to do with mollusks, mollusks is what? Eating, mollusk eating. Yeah, mollusk eating. Snail eating. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been molluscivorous in your life? Um... No, but I came close once. Someone tried to get me to eat a uh, uh, a raw oyster, and I said no. <laughs> you said no. <clears throat> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not going to. He's not going to eat something that that's bottom feeding and also raw. That's that's just seems very unwise. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Um, I've eaten snails before, um, but I have to say, I didn't. I did. I did take them out of the shell. I didn't crunch them up. What uh, scallops? 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 Scallops. Yeah. They they would come under that, and I have eaten those once upon a time, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, me too. I do eat mussels occasionally as well. They're mollusks, aren't they? Yeah, I wouldn't know. I'm not eating any of that anymore. Yeah. Get it out of here. No, like I. Not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I make an exception for um, mussels because they are kind of like filter feeding organisms. So I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's like a kind of a plant. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a plant. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so burrowing animals. They face a burrow bite trade off. And we're not talking about burrowing your mate's Game Boy. We're talking about digging a hole what? with your face. Okay? Oh. So. Burrowing is easier with a narrow head, right? But biting is better with a bigger head. So there's a selection pressure for these two things, especially when you're going to be eating hard foods. And there's also thought to be some kind of... Oh, no, sorry. It's also... Well, just a little... Go on. Little, little, little reason why narrow is better. Narrow head means that you're exerting a greater pressure for the same amount of effort. It's like trying to stab a, stab a pin into your thumb instead of stabbing a something that's better than a pin that I can't think of. Um, a mug. A mug, yeah. Mug's not going to break your skin easily. Pin will break your skin easily. So if you have a, a Fisabanian that has a head the size of a mug, it's going to have an awful job trying to dig. Yeah. Also, bigger head means more muscle mass, and therefore higher bite force, potentially. It Exactly. So because there's high bite forces required in eating you know, shelled prey, it would be unusual to have a burrowing species actually eating hard prey because of the bite force required. But Shroganophis wigmani, aka the checkerboard worm lizard, wasn't aware of this when it decided to evolve to eat snails and burrow around underground. And this beautiful Amphisbanian from the family Troganophidae is from North Africa, and it's founded Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. And it's one of only a few Amphisbanians I've seen that isn't a drab colour. 
It's actually really cool, isn't it? The photo in the paper. It's stunning. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Beautiful lizard. It's golden with an elaborate pattern of chocolate brown checkerboarding all over its body. And yeah, this thing, it's burrowing around eating snails. And yeah, they had a pretty cool idea for how to do this paper. Um, they basically caught themselves some worm lizards, kept them in terraria in the lab temporarily, and they tested the bite forces of these little lizards by presenting them with something called an isometric force transducer, which they bite on and then it measures their bite force. <laughs> yeah, isometric oh, right. <laughs> force transducer. Um, very dramatic. But if you bite one of those, it'll tell you your bite force. And apparently these little things were very happy to bite down on it repeatedly and readily. So they are quite feisty little customers. One thing they were having a little look at was to see if there was any sexual dimorphism in the checkerboard worm lizard heads. So whether or not males or females had bigger heads or stronger bites. And another study had previously found evidence of dimorphism in this species, a Martin et al. paper from 2012, which said uh, males and females have similar body size, but even when their bodies are a similar size, males are heavier, have longer tails and have larger heads. And they thought these differences might be explained by sexual selection because males Which... might compete. Right, so you've either got the competition angle, but then you've also got the niche separation angle. Yeah. Which might exaggerate that male size dimorphism if they are then, okay, so they've gotten bigger for competition reasons, but then suddenly these, these bigger prey items are also easier to eat. And they're not directly competing with the females either, so maybe there's more prey of that size also available. And that can almost compound the sexual selection for larger head size, perhaps. Yes. It's a very romantic and idea. trade off of getting a very big head and so you can't dig through the dirt. We like this idea because sexual size dimorphism in regards to niche separation is something we get really excited about. But actually, for the purpose of this paper, they treated all the lizards as one because they didn't find a difference between the size of males and females. The Martin et al. paper that I just mentioned had hundreds of individuals, 270, this paper only had 25, so the likelihood is that they just didn't find the dimorphism because their samples wasn't high enough in number. But regardless, um, for the purposes of this paper, all the lizards were tested together. It's just worth mentioning. But if you're wondering if there is sexual size dimorphism in this species, the answer is probably yes. Um, so yeah. Probably yes, based on the Martin paper, which is the same species, correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So the general idea is that lizards with a wider head have more bite force. And as Ben said, having a wider head while good for biting is bad for burrowing. And the bite force on these little lizards, they measured it with their isometric force transducer. And they found that these little lizards had a bite force of between 3.3 and 8 newtons. So to put that into perspective... Our second molars can exert a bite force between 1,100 and 1,300 newtons. So, I mean, compared to our bite, it's rubbish, but they are tiny little legless <laughs> worm lizards, so you like, give them a break. Well, and the other lesson is that if you see one of these snails uh, that you'd known as Fisimanian uh, would consume, you're probably capable of also consuming it. I know, yeah. Or not, that's a different question, but you'd be capable. Yeah, you can crush any snail you like. Literally, that's what they don't tell you at school. You can literally crunch through any snail. It's, it's not going to be an issue for you. So if you're wandering and you're tempted, just give it a bash. There's literally nothing to lose. No, please, please don't. Please don't <laughs> eat snails. Back to the worm lizards. So 
in this paper, there's a four-way plot, which is really cool. And what they looked at was to see whether or not the four most common snails in the environment... Um, well, basically, they looked at these four most common species of snail that these worm lizards are likely to encounter. And they investigated their hardness by seeing how much force it took to crush them. And they also investigated the size of their shell openings. And what they did was they plotted these against the checkerboard worm lizards' heads and their bite forces. And what was cool about it is it shows that the two hardest shells, the lizards actually don't have the strength in their jaws to crush, but they actually do have openings large enough for their heads to enter. Whereas the two smaller shells are too small for their heads to enter, but they have strong enough jaws to crush them in most cases. Like, the smaller lizards can't, but for the most part, by the time they're adults, they can actually crush these two smaller species. So there's a clear pattern in these four species of snails that are found alongside the worm lizards that they can either be crushed or they can put their heads inside and extract the snail meat. Which is pretty cool. It's pretty handy. It's... it's, it's kind of remarkable isn't it uh, I think there was only really one type of snail where a few of the uh, a few of the shells they measured were too hard and too small yes uh, it was the odd one wasn't there it, yeah it was very very few so it really does look like these worm lizards have this um, snail eating niche pretty pretty locked down okay not every individual will be able to eat every snail but there are snails available for every individual. Yeah, it must have been really gratifying when they saw these results and they were just like, wow, these lizards, like, they're really, they're out there really perfectly adapted to eat this selection of snails that we've gathered. They also did a wider analysis of head size versus bite force in lots of different lizard species, and in general they found that the head size of burrowing species appears to be very small in comparison to the species' body size. So burrowers have little heads, again, because having a little pinhead is handy when you're trying to use it to mash a small hole in the earth. Yeah. But what was interesting... Um, yeah, well, this was it. Oh, exactly. The... Which is the, check the checkerboard worm lizard. It... Who's both slim head and high bite force. Yep. When they... Basically, according to their results of the big, wide analysis, if you plot the head size of these checkerboard worm lizards onto their figure, you should get a bite force of about 1.41 newtons but in an, in reality they bite 3.7 times as hard as that so it's crunching above its weight this little lizard really in a big way but the yeah, big yes, it, it's small smaller head than you'd expect for its size and larger bite force you'd, than you'd expect for its head width absolutely they're not yeah. exactly sure how that actually happens and that is kind of the big question which remains after this paper is like, okay, so you've got this worm lizard, it's going around underground, it's crunching through snails, and it's got a jaw strength which is like massively above and beyond what you'd anticipate for a lizard with a head this size. How does it do mm -hmm. it? They talk a little bit about Sicilians that have some crazy double joint jaw mechanism of some description which means that they can chomp incredibly hard. Um, yeah, sort of additional leverage, right? That's that's the idea behind that one. Yeah, and they wonder if maybe there's something similar going on here. Um, it's kind of to be confirmed, really. Um, yeah, mentioned that maybe there's something to do with the teeth and the way they're exerting pressure on the on the uh, well, in this case, either the, either the scientific piece of equipment or a shell. Um, and there's something else about a uh, how do you even say that word? 
Parietal, I guess. Oh yeah, parietal. Parietal, parietal crest, which, I, I, uh, if I remember correctly, is is potentially another way to. So you would have a a muscle latched onto that, which would allow greater leverage for the jaws. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like a. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a line of bone that goes along the top of the skull, along the middle. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe there's something going on with its morphology where they've they've cracked this. Instead of having to compromise with digging and bite force, they've found some other way out. Mm. Which is pretty remarkable, and you sort of start wondering, hmm, what what drove them to come up with something new, which you presume is harder because of all the other, um, you know, all the other measured species seeming to have this rather direct trade-off between bite force and head head size and head size and uh, fossorialness. Yeah. Well, you want maybe they maybe they evolved in an environment that was really poor in things to eat that weren't hard shelled. Maybe it was an additional selective pressure early on or something along those lines. There yeah, I mean that's the thing about all these little weird creatures that live underground. I think there's got to be some kind of yeah, resource. And in this case, it seems as though it's snails. Like it's worth, it's worth the trouble of evolving yeah. these mental adaptations because, you know, there's not anything else under there eating all these snails. It's a really abundant resource. That's why I always think when I see a slow worm in the garden, it's like, wow, you've evolved to eat slugs and snails. Fair play. You know, there's going to be so many. Yeah, you, That's why they're all so chunky. You, you own this place. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, they're all so <laughs> fat. They've got these hilarious, like, dumpy front bodies. And you just think, well, yeah, fair play, mate. You're eating slugs like no one else was doing it. So now you're crushing it. Good on you. <laughs> Carry on, little slow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, essentially, this paper, checkerboard worm lizard, eating snails, way beyond its station. And, yeah, it really highlights, to me, what is now among the top five dilemmas in my life, which is the burrow crush dilemma. Um, will they burrow, will they crush? In this case, both, and with what can only be described as great success. Great success. Yeah. What a what a wonderful creature. Yeah, big up yourself, Trogonophis Wiegmanai. And if you haven't ever seen one, just quickly tippy-tap into your phone, checkerboard worm lizard, you won't regret it. Unless you hate things that look like little checkerboard Legless lizards. Yeah, yeah. But I can't imagine that's many people. No, no. I hope not. I mean, certainly not many of our listeners. And so we've got the burrow crush dilemma. And that is fundamentally kind of a morphological constraint, isn't it? You you know, you've got to be able to burrow and you've got to be able to crunch. And that kind of leads us on to other amphisbanians, which perhaps haven't got the luxury that Trogonophis wigmanae has got, where they can burrow and crush. Sometimes other species may have to be a little bit more flexible in their behaviour to compensate, perhaps, yes. for their lacking in other areas. Or perhaps, perhaps it was a lack of behavioural flexibility of the checkerboard worm lizard that forced it into uh, morphological changes at some point. Wow. Who knows? Stubbornness leads to evolution. Ah, uh, well, perhaps. Be that stubbornness or, you know, being simple. 
<laughs> the dum dums. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos of worm lizards, which I'm gonna encourage everyone to watch at the end. And there's one where um, <clears throat> Aphisbania alba, which is a Brazilian species, uh, someone basically found one in their garden in Brazil. It looks like they've got a lot of um, paving slabs in their garden, and perhaps the worm lizard like came out of some soil and landed on the floor. But it's quite a big thing. Like it's quite large it's probably like two feet long and it's just this big brown sausage and it moves um when they're not in soil they move um what's it called when uh boas and vipers and things just scoot along the floor in a straight reticular re- yeah rectilinear yeah 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 Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And you, <laughs> you're two-thirds of the way there. Rectilinear, yeah. And they they move like that, and it's pretty mad. Um, and then there's this one point where the guy's got a little sausage dog, and the sausage dog like goes up to this Amphisbanian and like, gives it a sniff. And it does this really bizarre defensive posture where it kind of like very quickly goes from being a straight line to a u-shaped it like raises its head and its tail at the same time and the dog's like ah like freaks out and runs away it actually works uh, it's really cool um yeah i'll put that video in the show notes but honestly i'd never seen one of these things just cruising around and they are just mental creatures like their faces is like nothing else they've got like you can barely see their eyes it's all like you know there's like skin over it the head's like super ossified and they're just they're just ossified weird. yeah meaning uh like boned ah as in it's like really tough. hard yeah bone or bony tissue i think they've got an ossified head i might be wrong in saying that but it would it would make sense for the sake of digging through stuff wouldn't it yeah yeah anyway should we move on to paper number two yeah they do have an ossified skull someone else has said it with a little bit more experience in worm lizards <laughs> excellent <laughs> yeah let's do it let's do it Okay, second paper is by Lopez, Martin and Salvador, published in 2013, so a little bit older than what we usually do, but we wanted to, yeah, Amphisbanians are lacking research, so we had to dig a bit deeper for this. Um, Published in Amphibia Reptilia, flexibility in feeding behaviour may compensate uh, for morphological constraints of fossoriality in the Amphisbanian Blanus Cyrus? Cyan, 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 cinerius? Hmm, I don't know. Cinerius. Cinerius. It could equally be canarius, couldn't it? But you just, there's no way to tell. Well, one of those, most likely. Yeah. Blanus yes. cinerius. Another sort of dietary biting, what do they do, how do they eat sort of question. But these guys are more interested in, okay, you give them different prey items, how do they deal with different prey items? Before it was quite restricted to snails. Okay, quite a diverse array of snails in terms of hardness of shell and largeness of opening. But here, they're feeding them some ants, some ant pupae, what else? Some spiders, some isopods, earthworms. Mate, it's a classic Thunderdome, isn't it, this one? Yeah, I, don't, I think Thunderdome is a little bit of a grandiose term. I mean, larvae, pupa, Mate, you, do they really stand a chance? You've never seen a pupae stick up for itself, that's why you say that. You're right. I've, I've never seen... I've, all I've seen are pupae roll over. <laughs> no, you're probably right. I say right. pods, on the other hand. I say Ooh. pods, mate. You've seen those chelicerae mouth parts, mate. They'll chafe you straight to death. Oh, yeah. Slowly, but surely. Yeah. yeah. They'll win. I don't know if they had chelicerae. That's actually like a... Chelicerae is like a major 
feature in phylogenetic study of invertebrates and I've probably just given them to, to a creature that doesn't have them. <laughs> what have you done? Stay I am so life. sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I was trying to show off. Um, so listen, yeah, this is the Blanus scenarius, right? This is the Iberian worm lizard. So this one's actually not that far away from the UK, Spain and Portugal. This one's found in. Um, be so cool to see one of these next time I'm in, well, if I'm in Portugal or Spain, I'm going to lift up some rocks. Blanidae this one. You know, we at the beginning, I was banging on about the different families. This one's Blanidae. So we've got another one represented here. Um, and yeah, you've, you've, you've very neatly what, what described. Does, what does this mean? The, the bland, the bland worm lizards. Yeah, I don't know. Blanids. <laughs> Blanids. It's not very catchy, is it? Don't know why nah. they called them that. But uh, it, so be it. There's five of them. There's five species in that one. But uh, they're all the Mediterranean ones. So it's interesting the diversity in the Mediterranean is so low compared to the diversity in like Brazil. I mean, is it? I mean, not that it's not interesting, but it's not surprising, right? Yes, that would definitely be fair to I say. I mean, Brazil, just by diversity of environments, I feel you, you're going to get that higher diversity. True that. And the size of Brazil is? That too, yeah. Tropical. It's big. Mm, warm. Um, so yeah, this paper, similar to the other one, they caught 25 wild Iberian worm lizards and they put them in glass terrariums with clear perspex pipes and sand. So basically they had these little clear perspex pipes and they were their burrows where they'd go and live in. They'd put some sand around them. And so for the feeding trials, they would put the worm lizards into their burrow and then add one of the prey items and then they would film it and watch and see how long it took and uh, record how they ate different prey items. And actually it was great because there were many different ways in which they ate prey items depending on what they were. Yeah, so they had, they recorded some basic stuff like time until bite, bite position, direction they're ingesting it, you know, whether the prey's going in head first or, or rear first, uh, number of bites, things like that. But also they managed to summarise these four categories of uh, feeding behaviour, I suppose. One being single swallow, where I mean, you, you know, eat the prey item in one go. One is the intermittent swallow, where it takes on a multiple attempts to swallow the prey item. Um, and then more interestingly, you've got the cut and swallow, where they'd be taking bits off the prey item and then consuming those. And the final one, which is the scrape. In, in their words, prey are bitten, the jaws inserted inside the prey's body, and then the body contents ingested, leaving only the exoskeleton. Yeah, and they usually left the exoskeleton. They sometimes ate it afterwards, but usually they'd leave it. And they think that might be because exoskeletons just aren't very nutritious, as it turns out. Or, uh, or quite difficult to digest. Yes. You know, not worth the effort. May still have nutrition, but may not be worth the effort. Yeah. But yeah, single swallow, where they were just like gobbling it down straight away. Uh, that was used for ants and spiders. So ants and spiders sense. getting gobbled. Small things. Yeah, exactly. The intermittent swallow you described, where they kind of slowly eat it, that was for worms. Because worms are quite big, aren't they? You, if you're a, basically a worm lizard and you're trying to eat a worm, you can't just suck it straight down. You've got to, you know, you've got to do it slower, a bit more measured. And yeah, the cut and swallow. Yeah. What was the cut and swallow for? Uh, prey are crushed and divided with bites along the body and then completely consumed piece by piece. So pretty much how we would eat something. Which prey items were they eating like that, though? The old cut and swallow. 
Oh, it was the coleoptera larva. So, yeah, beetle larvae. So, I mean, that's quite sizable larvae, right? Yeah, that must be such a juicy treat when they find one of those underground. Big grub. Mm-hmm. Nice big grub. Cut that up. <laughs> in little chunks. <laughs> Delicious. Mmm. Gooey. Yeah, so I just think it's great because these little lizards, right, they're not just bowling around willy-nilly eating things. When they come across a prey item, they're like, right, okay, it's that kind of prey item. What is it? It's a worm. Okay, well, worms, I'll eat that one a bit slower. Or, oh, oh, it's some kind of pupae. Well, I'm going to scrape out its insides and maybe not eat the shell because it's not so good. It's just interesting to see that these creatures, which spend their entire lives on the ground, are actually, you know, doing a little bit of decision making and adapting their behaviour depending on their prey. I mean, maybe it doesn't seem like a grandiose thing because we do that too, naturally. But it's just an interesting facet of their ecology, which if people hadn't taken the time to find out, we would not have known. Because you would never see it. You would never see it. Yeah. And then there's also some sort of very logical uh, links with larger prey volume take some longer to eat and stuff like that so there's although it's quite surprising well maybe it's surprising i don't know maybe you expected this all along so it's certainly surprising for me don't speak for me ben i'll tell you when i'm surprised all right <laughs> yeah exactly um but for me amphibians you don't you don't feel like they have many options no. in terms of prey handling um and to see this array uh seen in in a relatively limited number of individuals is is quite quite impressive i feel it is yeah it's cool to see that they're sort of generalist bug eaters they obviously don't have the luxury that the trogonophus we discussed had of having an abundance of snails um they've got a wide variety of prey they've got to adapt to eat and yeah their evolutionary history leads to a position where they can do all of the above rather than just one of the above yeah and perhaps in these guys because they they have access to softer prey items uh, perhaps they're more subject to this trade-off between uh, burrowing ability and head size. Certainly, judging by the previous paper, you would certainly assume them to be one of the uh, like standard, I guess, Amphisabanian species. And here we have a have a different solution for getting at a diversity of prey, not dealing with a bigger head to eat tougher items, but changing how they're eating them. Yeah, absolutely. Which I suppose, in very much like the first paper, also relaxes that pressure to have a larger head. If you can sort of eat smarter rather than harder, you'll do all right. Hmm. Have you looked at a picture of this Iberian worm lizard? I I am really ashamed to say I haven't. They're purpley coloured. They look a lot like a worm. They really put the worm in worm lizard. What was what was their common name again? Iberian worm lizard. Iberian. I kind of like. Oh, they're quite charming, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, they are actually. I I searched Blanus cinereus hand because I'm always curious to see how big they are compared to the hand of a human. And they're actually, you know, they fit in your palm. And in a lot of the photos, they seem to be attacking, which I like. <laughs> well, attacking. Maybe they're being attacked. They're defending. Yes, defending. But yeah, they're pretty adorable. Wow. Okay, this is a new life mission for me to see one of these. When I was in Portugal a couple of years ago, I um. I really only had eyes for chameleons. I just wanted to see some chameleons. And I did. So mission accomplished. Because uh, they got the common chameleons. The European one. But uh, yeah. If I ever go back there, there's a new goal. See one of these little mm-hmm. non-worms. They're great. They are, aren't they? Yeah. 
really neat little critters sweet so there we have it there's some uh, there's some tricky obstacles to overcome if you're a worm lizard and you're thinking about eating invertebrates but it seems as though at least for these two species we've discussed they've largely got it worked out and we mentioned at the beginning the diversity of worm lizards is ever growing and very appropriately for this bi-week's species of the bi-week we've got a brand new species Yes, a newly described four-pawed Amphisobanian. <laughs> the number of paws is very key. Yeah, paws, P-O-R, not P-A-W. Yes, zero P-A-Ws, zero. Okay, so this is a paper by uh, De Almeida, De Freitas, Borba de Silva, Costa Valverde, Rodriguez... Morera Perez and Mott, published in 2018 in Zootaxa, a new four-pawed amphisbena from northeastern Brazil. And just like that, we're moving from the Mediterranean to Brazil, where you were just drawing attention to the diversity of, you know, how many amphisbenians there may be. And lo and behold, here's a new one. Wow. That's... It's been hiding away. And now it's been formally described. Yes. So we're traveling to the Brazilian Caatinga, sorry, Caatinga, where, so when people think of, it's written Caatinga, but it's pronounced Caatinga. When people think of wild areas of Brazil, it probably commages an image of lush rainforest, right? The Amazon. That's kind of yep. the generic. Yep. Big rivers. Know, exactly. Big river dolphins. Lots of rain and big green rain, trees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But much of the interior northeast of the country is actually covered by Kachinga, which is a dry thorn forest containing small thorny shrubs, cacti and dry grasses. It's a tropical eco-region, all of its own, and for three months of the year, it's very lush during the cold summer. Uh, but for the long dry winter, it looks quite sparse because while it's wet in the summer, uh, during the winter, the trees drop their leaves, there's barely any rain, and they're all trying to conserve water. And that's why it ended up with the name Kachinga, which translates to white forest in the local Tupi language. Mm. So, nice bit of history. Yeah. And I mentioned earlier on, Brazil actually has the highest diversity of Amphisbanians of any country, with 74 species currently. So, if you're in Brazil right now, take humongous pride in that fact, and anyone you meet who's not from Brazil immediately take the opportunity to shove that straight down their throat because <laughs> no one comes close to having as many species of Amphisbanian as your fine nation and that is wonderful and that's growing right the amount being described is going up and up and shows no sign of slowing down and here we have number 75 in Brazil. In fact, I wouldn't even be surprised if it was a 76 and a 77, because this came out in 2018. But as far as we know, there's 75 species. And this one was discovered in the Espinasso mountain range in Bahia State, northern Brazil. And the specimens were found during vegetation cutting. So there was some mining going on, um, slightly bleak. But at least there was a herpetologist on hand to discover these little guys and give them a name. And the name is Amphisbena Catertensis, which refers to its type locality 
Caetite municipality in Bahia State, Brazil. And what does it look like? How would you describe this species? There's not actually a whole body shot in the paper, is there? It's just a shot of the face and the tail. So you've got to kind of fill in the gaps. Well, I, what's nice with amphibians is you're not going to be su- suddenly surprised or caught off guard by what's in between. <laughs> I would say these guys have quite a traditional counter shading, so pale belly, darker top. The dark is this lovely, rich gunmetal grey um, on the snout, which sort of becomes more rich and darker onto the back. It's got quite a classic Amphysobanian snout, so not super pointed, not super broad, somewhere in the middle, kind of, yeah, kind of I don't know, I'd say like standard lizard proportions. Yeah, quite sort of, yeah, it's just a normal sort of tapering snout, isn't it? It's not anything, some of these things, yeah. they look really weird. This one's right. quite acceptable quite, to behold. quite classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, their rear end looks like they've been chopped at a, what's that, like 35 degree angle. Yeah. And have little spiky scales on their, on their end, presumably to block up the hole behind them. Yeah, it's very, I think, I think so. I tried searching on this, um, uh, because those little, what are they called? The little bumps, they've got a name, uh, tubercles. Tubercles. Yeah, so the, the the end of the tail there, like you, the best way I can think to describe it is, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you get a panini, and they they cut it diagonally. Yeah, I was. I'm so glad you've gone the bread route because I was thinking of a baguette. Mmm, baguette equally nice. Um, but yeah, I would say that's how it looks. It is very abrupt, as you described at this 35 degree angle, and then to compound the strangeness. The scales on the end of the tail, yeah, are these like tubercles. They're like conical and they poke out. And, you know, I can imagine that they're used for pushing off when they're underground. It looks like it would have good purchase. You could like use it to push yeah. and potentially block maybe perhaps a bit of phragmosis going on in a pinch when swelling up, covering the exit with the tail. Um, yeah. But yeah, I couldn't find but, any I mean, confirmed answer on that. Either way, from now on... Um baguettes and batons cut at a diagonal will always just be amphisobanian bread to me yeah and it does taste better when you cut it like that <laughs> it's i yeah I've, I've never seen anybody prove prove that wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, how, big are, how big are these little guys they're, they're not as big as a baguette are they no that would be, um, that would be too much they're sm- 235 millimeters yes that's what i is that what you've got too I've got the right measurement. <laughs> I think so. How big is that? Lack of certainty in my statement there. Let me take a second and make sure you're right. Uh... Be very disappointed if, if you had a baguette. It was merely that length. How long was it? 235 millimetres. Uh, yeah, mm, yeah, that wouldn't I mean, you were be... talking about one, one in Brazil that was big enough to scare off a Sausage small dog. cowardly dog. Yeah. So. I mean, small, yes. Cowardly, no. That sausage dog, there was menace in its eyes. Ah. But was it just fear of the unknown that drove that menace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. and the thing is, when a sausage dog sees a Amphispanian, it can't discuss or, like, sort of decompress from that situation naturally. It has to kind of just deal with it all in its own head. They're naturally threatened by other things that are sausage-shaped. <laughs> of course. <laughs> a rival. No wonder. Yeah, yeah. 
goodness. Okay. Dear oh dear. Um yeah. So we don't know the <laughs> we don't know what the point of the conical tubercles is, but the precloacal pores, which is the other thing you notice when you look at that photo. So one of the pictures in the paper is the underneath of the Amphisbanian, rather embarrassingly, it's had a picture of its cloaca taken. And the cloaca is very odd. Um, there's lots of scalation, which is very unfamiliar. Um, there's like a big ring of scales around the bottom. And then the actual uh, precloacal bit is like split into like six scales. But then this, before that, even, there's these four little pores. And again, P-O-R-E-S. And yeah, they are very obvious. You can really see them in the picture just before the cloaca. And I did some reading to find out what these are, what they're for. And apparently they release pheromones and leave a secretion trail in the tunnels. And there's not much in the way of evidence, but they're thought to play a role in communicating signals underground, potentially to help them find a mate. Potentially also there might be a territorial element to it. Um, Certainly something else that's quite interesting how these things might be communicating with each other via scent underground. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It'd be a difficult thing to uh, study because it is once again trying to follow fossorial animals. I suppose you'd have to do it in a controlled environment and just pray that your lab results back up or, or sync up with uh, what occurs in the wild. Yeah. It'd be difficult to do in the wild, I would suspect. Need like a gigantic worm lizard farm. You know, like worm farms have a worm lizard farm. Look at that burrow. Yeah, and then sort of experimentally limit some individuals' ability to produce pheromones, which doesn't sound particularly pleasant for the Amphisbanian. No, it'd need like some kind of pheromone nappy. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if that would really work, because it probably just gets scraped off, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'll just remain a mystery. Well, hopefully there's some Amphisbanian endocrinologists listening who can solve this riddle. Maybe people could, or have, pulled out the pheromones from, from individuals and then applied them to different places and did the classic, like, uh, what do you call it? Like that T-junction test that they did for rattlesnakes, see if they were more likely to go one way than another way, depending on the uh, presence or absence yeah. of individuals' pheromones. That would work. That would potentially work. <laughs> Who knows? Either way, pretty cool. Yeah, it is a cool... It's a cool and these guys have four of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Amphisbania chitotensis. Really cool. Chitotensis, I think it probably is. And yeah, just nice little new species. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that pretty much concludes our episode on Amphisbanians, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks again to Jeremiah Martin for a great, that is a great suggestion for an episode. And if you want to pick a topic yourself, you can become a patron and uh, do exactly that. So um, bear that in mind. Um, have we got any other any other business? I, uh, I have some any other business for you. Oh boy. Oh yes. We have been sent a new mystery herpetological sound. Hey. Uh, Yvette. So very, very big thank you there. And uh, I think this shall be played and you shall attempt to guess. Okay, I'm going to listen to the sound. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> um, okay, I think it sounded froggy. Uh, any any advances on froggy? That is really hard. Um, thing is, as soon as I said it sounded froggy, I was like, does that sound froggy? Um, <laughs> it's by itself. Immediate second guessing. Yeah, it's by itself, which is weird. Uh, no, I'm gonna say some. I'm gonna say it's a Cuban tree frog. It's not a Cuban tree frog. I'm afraid. Um, wrong continent. And wrong order, I guess. Oh no! Is it lizard or is it? What is it? <laughs> yeah. So this this is a uh, African fat-tailed gecko. Oh, that's that. Oh um, God! I should have Conix cordicinctus, and it is a, a a sound it is made making when a gecko has been held. Oh. So, not a particularly pleased gecko, I would presume. Um, it's the but, sound of a livid gecko. Yeah. Wow. Pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Big thanks to Yvette for sending that. that yeah. is... Keep them coming, guys. Pretty I'll neat. keep I'll, guessing I love wrong. This. You line them up. I won't knock them down. <laughs> you were so much better. Last the one you did, you absolutely crushed it. Uh, I mean, maybe I, I, there's a lot of luck involved because if you, you know, you were making them some. Well, as you know, you're 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 picking up that was only one should have pushed you away from frogs, but it didn't. Which it almost did. It almost did, but almost. But then you second guess, you second guess. Ah, such is life. Still, what fun. I love this so. I I, I love this because you never think of. I don't think acoustics in, in herpetology is a massive field compared to, like, I don't know, whales or birds. Obviously, there's some fantastic amphibian work out there, but I, they make wonderful noises, and I love it. I love, I, love, <laughs> I love hearing them. Yeah, it's really cool. I think because, like, snakes are quite loath to make noises for the most part, and snakes are what I kind of am most interested in, I always forget, like, there's, yeah, there's so much, there's so much in the way of noises that her pet yeah. want to make yeah you're totally right yeah yeah it's really cool um so any other business i have got we got a couple of new patreons so hudson schwarz and ben stegenger uh so thanks very much team yeah thank you for that that's really really kind and yeah i just wanted to briefly mention so um a friend of mine called nathan rusley is an indonesian guy who is at Bangor University with me, and he runs a herpetarium in uh, Chiliwang in Java. And he basically they have a herpetarium where they rescue predominantly snakes, but other animals as well, who are um, victims of human persecution or accidentally get hurt by people. So they've had a few like reticulated pythons and stuff that have had to go in and they've got a vet that goes in and like fixes them up and then they re- release them back into the wild. And they also do snake calls and educating the public. Unfortunately, obviously, because of COVID, most of their stuff's on hold, but they've still got a need for funds to upkeep their facility, um, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to share a link to a GoFundMe page. I made a small donation. If you feel like doing the same, cool. If not, no worries, but um, it's a great cause. So yeah, just thought I'd give him a shout out. Yeah. I know they're struggling. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel like quite a few places are right now. Big time. Yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and if you want to check out their website, it's herpetofaunaindonesia.org. Nathan also runs like um, field herping trips for interested parties. And I mean, he's like super knowledgeable guy, just like great guy to be around. So yeah, check him out. Any other business beyond that? Oh, i got one more thing. There's another video. I put both the videos in the show notes. There's the um, the sausage dog versus the sausage boy. And then there's also another one, uh, which is a video of Amphisbaena fuliginosa, which is um, a species of Amphisbaenium, which is like really beautiful. It's like black and white. And I was just surprised to see such sort of dramatic patterning on something which lives underground. It's really nice. Mm. So that's also a video worth checking out. Yeah, I, d- I, d- I don't have anything else. I think... We've covered everything we aim to this episode. Yeah, we crushed it. Good stuff. All that remains to be said is you can get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We sell t-shirts on Redbubble. And yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs>